And the next verse is Mark chapter 14. It was read for us this morning, verses 53 through 72. Now, some of you might be thinking, holy moly, that is a lot of verses. Is he really going to preach through all those? And I am. I'm going to do it. Okay, Because this is a section I believe most of us are very familiar with. Jesus goes on trial. Peter goes on trial. I'm not going to read them for you again, but this is a section that we know very, very well. And so before I begin, let us pray together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together as your saints. We lift up to you everyone who is not able through illness or um, through circumstances to be here with us this morning. We pray that you bless them. We pray that you watch over and protect them. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would uh, bless everyone um, who is here, that you would, you would keep us healthy. You, you know the number of hairs uh, on our head. You know the number of viruses in our system. Uh, nothing is outside of your control. And for that, we give you an abundance of thanks and gratitude. And we pray, God, as we open the word now and we look at the trial of Christ and the trial of Peter, that you would teach us about our own trials and how to endure them and how to count them all joy and how, Lord God, to be faithful in them just as your son was faithful. In his name we pray, amen. Now, have you ever... You got that back there, Dan? You good? Yeah, booby trap. Have you ever wondered about James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4? I'm going to read it for you. And, and this is some verses that I have considered uh, a number of times. Maybe you have as well. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, I don't know about you, but generally when the trial comes, I don't say, oh, yippee, joy, happy, happy, joy, joy, the trial is here. Now I can work on my steadfastness. That's not what I, I do, generally, right? The trial comes and I throw the book, or I stomp my foot, or I say something I shouldn't, or I start whining about my circumstances. But James, the brother of our Lord Jesus, tells us this, count it all joy. But how do we do that? How do we do that? And why is it that James expects that we're going to meet trials? And how, my goodness, does the steadfastness we learn in the midst of trials make us perfect and complete? I feel pretty complete already. I don't, I, I don't know about you. I feel full, feel complete. I'm good. If we could just put it on auto con, you know, cruise control from here to the grave, I would be happy with that. But God would not be happy with that. There is something mysterious about this God that we serve, right? And C.S. Lewis says, it's not that we believe in a God, it's that we believe in this God, this particular God. And this particular God favors trials. <laughs> and it's not just something that we have to, like, stoically nod our head to. We count it all joy. Right now, every aspect of our modern global society is being tested. Now, how have you responded to that? With joy and steadfastness? With perfection and completeness? Why? And where did you go wrong? What was it about the trial that caused you not to count it all joy? To not grow in steadfastness? The scene for us, Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 72, is set up in verses 53 and 54. Jesus is led under armed guard to the house of the high priest, and Peter follows, right? At the very beginning, when Jesus first met Peter, he said, follow me. And here is Peter following Jesus, but at a very safe distance. He's not under guard. He's not handcuffed. 
right? He, he's not being dragged along. He's following Jesus, but he's following Jesus from a, a safe distance. Peter is a free man enslaved to his idols. He fled Jesus' fate and he retained self whole and unharmed. The high priest is with his counsel waiting for Jesus to get there, ready to see the conspiracy to murder Jesus through to the end. This is what they've been waiting for all the way back in Mark chapter 3, verse 6. They want Jesus dead, and this, this now, now he is in their hands. And, and they went out to get him, and the high priest was so right, confident in Judas selling Jesus out that he's already gathered everyone together in his house. They didn't have to send word to gather everyone. They are so committed to this conspiracy that they are, they're just ready. They're ready for Jesus. Mark records the hearing before the Sanhedrin prior to the account of Peter's denial. Now, this is what's really important. The way that Mark writes this, right? He says that Jesus is being taken to the high priest's house. Here's Peter following him along. And then Peter sits down at the fire to warm his hands with whom? The persecutors of Jesus, those who had brought him bound there. And then what happens is then Mark breaks away and he goes upstairs into the high priest's house, and he tells us everything that happens. And then later, in verse 66, he says, and while Peter was below in the courtyard. So what he wants us to see is that these two stories are actually happening at exactly the same time. While Jesus is upstairs being questioned about who he is, Peter is downstairs being questioned about who Jesus is. The two things are happening at exactly the same time. And so the way that Mark does it is he likes to put, he likes to sandwich things together. He likes to weave them together because the two stories help us interpret the other story. Each story helps us interpret the other. These stories relate the details of three simultaneous trials. Okay, I want us, this is not just the trial of Jesus. The high priest is on trial. Peter is on trial. And Jesus is on trial. All three of them are on trial. How far is the high priest willing to go to protect himself and his position? How far is Peter willing to go to protect himself and his position? And how far is Jesus willing to go to protect himself and his position? So there's two stories and three trials. But actually, there's a fourth trial. And the fourth trial is the person who's reading this. It's your trial. You are being tried along with Jesus, along with the high priest, and along with Peter. And let us consider the conclusion to Jesus' last night on earth and let us stand trial before the word of God. Right? This is what Mark intends. Using these trials, he's putting you to the test. He's trying you. Who in this story are you most like? Who in this story would you agree with? Who in this story would you distance yourself with or draw near to? How you respond when you're reading this is the fourth trial. And that's the one that we will come back to at the very end. But first, let us get to the trial of the high priest. The high priest is waiting with his posse. He too, though, is a prisoner. He is chained by the idols of his heart, his own autonomy, his own power, his own self. He's surrounded not by what gives him strength, but by human weakness, a prison of his own making, right? We tend to think of a man like this in really nice clothes, surrounded by servants, surrounded by the powerful, as being a man who's autonomous and can do whatever he wants. But this man is in a prison, in a prison that he has created. His power is based on the popularity among the people. Remember, he's afraid to make the people angry at him, because if they're angry at him, then he will lose his position, his standing in the community. He's imprisoned by the support of the council gathered around him. They are so committed 
to this religion of theirs that they're not going to just take Jesus by, with a rope and hang him from a tree in the garden, in, in the, all of it, back where he was, where the olive trees were. Right? If you think about it, if all they wanted to do was put him to death, why didn't they just take a rope and hang him there? Because what they're enslaved to this law code that they have. And so even though the whole thing is a sham, they've still got to check all the boxes. This is a, a, a terrible, exhausting way to live. Even in their sin, they've still got a huge checklist of things that they've got to make sure they get done so that their sin at least looks good. And some of us live lives very much like that. Sometimes our sin is very complicated. Sometimes our sin involves a whole lot of check boxes to check so that we appear respectable in the eyes of other people. So this man is enslaved not only to the populace, he's enslaved to his colleagues, to all the other Jews who uh, fawn over the law and follow the same fig leaf faith. But he is also a slave to the Roman authorities. (laughs) They can't just say, they cannot just commit someone to the death penalty. The Jews can't do it. They're not allowed to. The Roman authorities are the only people who can actually say, yes, we're going to put this man to death. The Mishnah, an ancient collection of Jewish oral teaching, this is what they had um, many years ago in the first century. The Mishnah was this uh, oral tradition that the scribes are responsible to upkeep. And this, and within the, the Mishnah, which was later written down, it makes frequent and bitter reference to the fact that the Romans had taken away from them this cherished and glorious power of capital punishment. The Jews were very upset that they couldn't just put to death who they wanted to put to death. They had to go to their overlords and make sure that it was okay. John chapter 18, verse 31, it says, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And this irked them badly. This irked them badly. This is part of why they hate the Roman overlords so much. They're not their own masters. And they can say whatever they want and they can act however they want. But when it really comes down to it, if they do anything outside of what the Roman authorities approve of, Right? This is, they're also afraid that the mob is going to now get out of hand and then the Roman soldiers are going to come. This is something they're going to be talking about throughout this whole section here because they're really afraid of the Roman authorities, and they ought to be. The power of the sword was the most jealously guarded prerogative in Roman provincial administration. Even in a center like Alexandria, where there was no question of the loyalty of the people in Rome, you couldn't just put somebody to death. Right? In, in a place like that, which those people were not Italians, it was another city that Rome had come and taken over. Their loyalty was unquestioned. They still didn't give the locals the authority to put people to death. Because he, right, who has the power of sword has a lot of power. Jesus was sentenced by the Sanhedrin on the charge of blasphemy. But it was necessary to prepare a political charge in order to secure his execution by the Roman governor. Notice, after this trial... They never mention the fact that he was blaspheming. That's what they're going to accuse him of here. But notice as we go forward that it's never that. That's never what they tell Pontius Pilate. That's not what they tell Herod. They tell him that he says he's the king. So the charge that they find evidence for against Jesus isn't even the charge that they take to the Romans because that's not going to do it. The Romans don't care a lick about a Jew blaspheming or not. All they care about is authority and power. And so they're going to take Jesus and drag him before 
Pontius Pilate and say, this man says there, he doesn't have a king, he is the king. And later, the first century Romans who were reading the Gospel of Mark, that was exactly what was going on. They were dragged into the center of town, and they had to commit sacrifices to the Roman cult of, of, of the emperor. And if they didn't, that is when they got into trouble. But they're saying the thing they went to the, the stocks for was no king but Jesus, which is also what the American colonialists, uh, they, they actually stitched it on their flags. No king but Jesus. No Lord but Jesus. Right? This is the thing that... That Jesus is actually executed for. And this is the thing that the Romans in the first century that were reading Mark were dealing with. This is what Christians were always dealing with. Right now, right? Right now, when, when, when push comes to shove, as this pandemic spreads, we're going to see a lot of this now. People, the loyalty of who our actual king is and how far we're supposed to go in obeying the civil authorities is going to be tested by a lot of us, I do believe. And what I want us to see is that there's nothing new about this. This is a trial that hopefully Christians always have to have. It's a trial that should be common to all of us. Who are, is your king? Who is your emperor? Who is it that you bow the knee to? Now, there's other goofy things going on here. The council was con- composed of 70 members and the ruling high priest who presided over its deliber- deliberations. It was called the Sanhedrin. And th- there's scribes, there's the elders, there's the priests, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, everybody's got a, 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 um, a part in this group, but there were 70 members. But you only needed 23 members to have a quorum, what they call a quorum. Now, a quorum is the, the basic number that you need and actually to have the meeting be official. So when we go to Presbytery, we have to have a certain number of delegates there, otherwise the whole thing doesn't count. What, what we see here is that there's, there's probably only about 23 people here at this meeting. Because the whole council gets together and not until Mark 15, verse 1. So what is this then? If the whole council gets together in Mark chapter 15, verse 1, what is this little group doing? Well, this is the meeting before the meeting, as I like to say. This is a joke Dean and I used to say. If if you're going to have a meeting and there's going to be a difficult person there or a difficult situation, you have three or four of the meetings before the meetings where you work out all the trouble so that when you sit down to have the actual meeting, all the troubles worked out. <laughs> and in this case, the verdict, they want to guarantee that the verdict they're looking for is found before they get everybody together. Because, again, we're going to find out later, not everybody is down with what's going on here. Now, if you do the math, if there's 70 members, 23 is a quorum, that's not a majority. You could still have 50 people who don't want what is about to happen go down, and, but it doesn't matter because the verdict will already have been reached. Okay? They're going to have 23 witnesses to what it is that Jesus is going to say that's going to get him condemned. The high priest is on trial here. And the evidence shows that he is one of the conspiring heathen mentioned in Psalm chapter 2, who God holds in derision. Remember that Psalm 2? The heathen nations rage and they're conspiring against the anointed one, the Messiah of the Lord. And who, who does that make the high priest then? How far is he willing to go to kill a prophet of Israel? How far is he willing to go to, to, to get a rival out of the way? The high priest, his name is Joseph, surnamed Caiaphas. That's how the Gospels refer to him as Caiaphas. Now, his ability as a diplomat and an administrator and a politician is suggested by his tenure of office. He served for 19 years in an era where the average was four. 
what kind of cutthroat do you think this guy must have been? Because, right, this is, this is how it always works in politics. People don't usually last a long time in Congress here unless you're willing to go pretty far into immorality. Now, I don't mean to be too cynical, but it's true, right? It's true. I love, too, that people have a problem with a president who's been a president for four, four years, and they've been in Congress for 30, right? And, and it's like, I'm sorry. <laughs> you, were, you were running this train into the ground two, two decades before this guy ever even, anyway. You have got to be a pretty nasty cutthroat to stay in power this long. So I, I'm actually a little impressed with this guy, as I, I, equally terrified, though, because this guy has probably got some dirt and some blood on his hands. Paying Judas 30 pieces of silver to turn Jesus over to them seemed, right? He just did it without a blink of an eye. It's because it's probably the kind of business he does all day long. In capital cases, conviction required the unanimous evidence of at least two witnesses. This is a provision rooted in the word of God, Deuteronomy 17.6, 19.15, and Numbers 35.30. You can't just go be putting people to death. You can't just hang them from a tree with a rope. You've got to have two witnesses. The witnesses, <clears throat> in this case, were all on call. Somehow, before they even had <laughs> right, the, Jesus there in their midst, the witnesses just happened to be in the middle of the night, the week of a festival, on the premises. And that is unusual. That is unusual, to say the very least. Everything seems well arranged, and that is a sign of the miscarriage of actual justice that's going on, right? I, I worked in the court system. Even when the person is guilty, it still takes a long time. It does. I mean, the whole point of right, a criminal justice system is you want it to be slow because what you don't want is 10, 10 days after you, you killed the guy, you found out he was actually innocent, right? Criminal justice systems ought to be very slow, right? Not... not like the DMV. The DMV should be fast, but the criminal justice system should be very, very slow. What we have is a government that makes everything slow. This whole situation here, it just screams false, screams wickedness, corruption, conspiracy. It would be funny if it wasn't so wicked. It says in verse 55 that they sought evidence and couldn't find any. Indeed, Many violated the Ninth Commandment, it says very clearly, to bear false witness, and ironically, their lying is, in fact, the problem. Now, it's, it's very true when it comes to witnesses. If their stories align perfectly, someone is lying, because no one remembers events exactly the same way. No witnesses will come in and be like, yep, uh, it was, uh, he was 5'6", he was black, he was about 220, it was a blue car, he had a tattoo above his eye. Nobody, no two witnesses will come in and just give evidence perfectly, right? This is something that we, is important when it comes to accounts of Jesus later on. Witnesses don't give the same evidence. Now, what's happening here is, right, the stories don't match, but they don't match to the point that they can't figure out even a coherent statement to make. There's so much evidence that they can't, it's all very confusing, there are people who are lying, and they didn't, they didn't get their story straight before they came in before this, the Sanhedrin, and now the stories are contradicting one another. The problem isn't that there, there isn't evidence against Jesus. The problem is, at this point, there's way too much evidence. They can't reconcile it. Now, in Jewish criminal law, it was, the way that they did things is that the witnesses were the prosecution. So the Sanhedrin are quiet. They sit there quietly listening. The witnesses are the prosecution. They come in... 
They show evidence, they ask questions, and they're the ones trying to convince the Sanhedrin, who are the judges, that this person is actually guilty. Now, in verse 60, we read that the trial of the high priest isn't going well. Okay? He had everything arranged, and, and yet, right, here's Jesus, he's under arrest, here's the witnesses, they're all there, they're all testifying, but the thing isn't coming together. No aspect of this miscarriage of justice checks his ego or his conspiracy against rightful, his rightful sovereign. The mockery of a trial at least wouldn't allow contradictory evidence, and for that I give them a gold star. Right? They didn't proceed against Jesus because the evidence didn't line up. But, but now things are getting a little desperate. What are they going to do? They can't just let him go because the point is they, they have him in his, their grasp and they want him to die. Now, the high priest actually inserts himself into the, into the case as a prosecutor. He starts asking questions. Now, this is where the whole thing, right? We, we know that they're bearing false witness. But that's something that's going on inside their hearts that Mark tells us. This, him coming down off the bench to actually engage in the prosecution, is, is, that, that is as close to a mistrial as you're going to get at this point. But nobody stops him. Why is that? Because all, this entire group wants the same thing he wants, and they don't care if they have to go against the rules in order to do it. This whole thing almost completely breaks down at this point. He dons the mantle of prosecutor and begins to ask Jesus questions. If the charges themselves could neither be agreed upon nor substantiated, perhaps Jesus would entrap himself in some incriminating statement. Right? No, it's been a while. Remember, this is the last week of Jesus' life. There was a time where he was sitting in the courts of the temple, and all kinds of people were coming to ask him questions, and eventually they stopped asking questions because they realized nobody could answer him. So the high priest is, is so intense about this happening that he's willing to, he's like, well, let's just go for it. Let's shoot the moon here. Let's try to trap Jesus in his own words. Nobody else has been able to do it, but maybe I can do it right here. Now, even if the charges themselves could neither be agreed upon nor substantiated, perhaps Jesus could entrap himself in some incriminating statement. I already said that. Sorry. It is an inescapable fact that the success or failure of this conspiracy now hangs on Jesus. They have failed in all of their, all the tactics. It's now down to Jesus answering them or not answering them. Now, how tempting do you think it was for Jesus at this point to just remain silent? He's been silent up to this point. They have nothing. He could walk out of here a free man. All he's got to do is stand there and be silent. But the irony of this is just too delicious for me. Because man, right, contributes nothing to the salvation of man except sin. In this case, Jesus has got to be the chief witness against himself. Which this, now, when it comes to criminal law, there is one, just, there, there are only a few, a handful of absolute, um, definite bedrock ideas. One of them is that you ought never to be the, the primary witness against yourself. Right? This, it's in the Constitution that this idea because I should right if you're going to accuse me of something you're going to, the burden of proof is on you right I, I can't be a witness this is why I can claim the fifth amendment I'm not the chief witness against myself and so here Jesus is himself he realizes 
right? Any person who's got to be the chief witness against himself realizes the miscarriage of justice that's going on. This is the hour that Jesus was praying and sweating blood over to avoid, and now the whole thing hangs on what he's about to say. Jesus is sinless. He has committed no crimes. Man contributes nothing to the salvation of man but his own damning sin. Jesus is not only the God among us, he is not only the spotless lamb, the once for all sacrifice for sin. Believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen, the only reason he goes to the cross is because he testifies against himself. It's all him. Even here, <laughs> even when the enemies of God are, try, are on the one-yard line, right, trying to get the ball into the end zone to win the Super Bowl, they can't do it. Jesus is I mean, like, all right, give me the ball. <laughs> you, <laughs> you poor little people. Even to say, right, killing me will save you all, and you can't even get it done. And this is who Jesus is. He will go as far as he needs to go, including testifying against himself. Now, the question of the high priest is quite interesting. He must have understood on some level the veiled revelations that Jesus had made about himself because they go from tearing the temple down, which Jesus never says he was going to tear the temple down. He did make a reference to himself. Tear this temple down, and it will be, I'll build it again in three days. They go from that to now, are you, this is what he asks, the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? Now, blessed is a word that Jews would put in place of the word God because they weren't allowed to say the word God. So what they're asking is, are you the, anoint, are you the anointed of the Lord, the Son of God? Now, it's, we have to be very clear. They're not asking him if he's the second person of the Trinity, as we would understand it, because for them, they would have no, right, they would have no conception of such a thing. They would, they would not say, wait, are you the eternally begotten of the Father? That's not what they're asking him. But Israel is the son of God. And whoever the leader is, the Messiah, as it says in Psalm 2, right? Today I have begotten you. You are my son. The leader of Israel is referred to as the son of God. This is what David is called back in 1 Samuel, the son of God. And so he's asking him, are you the Messiah, the son of God? It's like asking him two different, in two different ways the same question. Jesus says, does not argue with what the high priest has just said. He doesn't argue at all. He accepts the title, but he doubles down on it. This is what I love about it, right? This, this man is standing on a precipice, and he's the only one that's going to push himself, right? He's the only thing that's going to get him over it. And he's standing there, and, and, and instead of just saying, yes, I am, he doubles down. I love this. This is what he says. He combines Psalm 110 verse 1 with Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. He takes these two messianic ideas and he says, <clears throat> you, you don't have any idea who I am. Let me tell you who I am. Psalm 110 verse 1, this is what it says. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Now Jesus puts these two things together in chapter 14, verse 62. And Jesus said, I am. Ooh, ooh, you're not, you're not allowed to say that. Right? Because who did God call himself at the burning bush? Ooh, Jesus. 
Mm. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds of heaven to crush you. He's putting all of this stuff together. He is not afraid of them. This is his judgment of them, not their judgment of him. This whole thing is totally reversed. He is saying, I am, <laughs> I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. And you, my friends, are going to see me coming in my power. You are going to see me coming from the right hand of the Father. You are about to see some amazing things. Says the man, handcuffed. If the, this is what is a little shocking. At any point, is the high priest so seared his conscience that he is not ta- he doesn't even for a moment consider whether the, Jesus is speaking the truth? Right later, we're going to see some Gentiles. Right, we're going to see even Pontius Pilate say, "Wait, wait, 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 wait. Who did he say he was?" Some of the Gentiles are going to be like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! Did you say he he said he was the son of God?" And the Gentiles all take a moment and they're like, whoa, he's the son of which God? Like even in their paganism, they're a little bit more afraid once these, these elements come out about who Jesus says he is. But here, the Sanhedrin doesn't even blink. They are so into their own view, they're so into their own interpretations of the scripture, their own man-made traditions, that they don't even pause for a moment to think, what, oh, hmm, man, what if he is who he says he is? Maybe we shouldn't do this. Maybe I should back off. No, they put their foot on the gas and they don't stop. They're going full tilt towards hell. The law concerning blasphemy is found in Leviticus chapter 24, verses 15 through 16. It was a very elastic charge. It could be stretched to include anybody and anything that the Jewish authorities didn't like. Now, in the Hebrew root of the verb in Leviticus 24.15 means to undervalue someone and to proclaim it. That's all, like, they're like, okay, this is, it's, I mean, that is a very political idea, right? There, there was a time where what I wanted to do for a job was actually help write laws um, and actually come up with the language. And, and I, I was like, it's just too imprecise, a job. I mean, you have, you have to have these words that, right, this is why people who don't know very much about criminal law go to the ballots, and they read some measure, and they're like, oh, that sounds reasonable. But little do we know that the words that they're using do not mean what we think they mean. So here, what we see is this word can be stretched. If you're proclaiming out loud and undervaluing someone, well, what does undervaluing mean? That, that's a very strange idea. And again, right? Th- this, this whole thing, this whole thing. This is what Jesus, remember when Jesus in Mark chapter 2, verse 7, when he was forgiving sins, they said he's blaspheming God. Because what they saw was that he was taking upon himself, he was diminishing the honor of God and was proclaiming it publicly. Because the blasphemy charge is not new with him, it's old. The high priest tears his robes, which is actually forbidden. That's something the high priest is not allowed to do. Leviticus chapter 21, verse 10, Moses explicitly says, never tear your robes. And so the high priest is tearing the robes. And what we see here is a shadow of the tearing of the veil in the temple. Because in the Old Testament, this is, right, there's a king, um, one of the kings in 2 Kings, 
is, uh, it's not going well for him. And the prophet comes up and grabs his robes, which are the sign of his authority, and tears them. And, and this is a scene that happens a lot in the Old Testament. When somebody is stripped of their power, their robe is torn. This is why the robe of many colors was taken off of Joseph. And so what the high priest is doing here, Jesus doesn't tear his robes. He's tearing his own robes because that's exactly what he's doing. This whole priesthood is coming, crashing down around his ears, and he is the one not pulling off what what he really wants, but what God really wants, which is the destruction of this whole sad sideshow called Second Temple Judaism. He tears his own robes. His authority is null and void. The high priest and the whole priesthood stood on trial that day, and they were convicted of blasphemy themselves. They are the felons. They are the ones who will be put to death because a generation later in AD 70, I didn't cover, I saved this little nugget. These priests were so into this <laughs> the sacrificial system. The Roman soldiers were in the city. The Roman soldiers are coming into the temple and the, there was priests at the, at the altar continuing the sacrificial system right up until they got stabbed by Roman soldiers. They were that into it. Like, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, I, I'm into my religion, but I mean, there's, there's limits, right? I mean, there's a guy with a sword at the door and a spear. There's a giant army coming right in the front door of the church. I may not flee away, I hope, but I'm not going to just keep doing exactly what I'm doing, acting like they're not there. And that's what happened to these same men. They are slain right at the altar that they love so much with the system that they love so much because the real king came, the real high priest came, and they testified against him and put him to death. So this has been the trial of the high priest, and let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, he's failed the test in every conceivable way. We'll pause here at verse 63. Because while all of this is going on, downstairs there's another trial going on, and that's the trial of Peter. Now here we are dealing with a very ironic situation, for just as Jesus is being tried above, Peter is in the courtyard with the guards, warming himself while his master is being put to the flames of inquest. (laughs) Jesus is in the flames. Peter is sitting at the flames, comfortably warming himself with, again, the people who arrested Jesus. The story develops stage by stage until Peter has passed the point of no return. His rash self-confidence and scorn of others back in verse 29 of chapter 14. His failure to stay awake and pray in the garden, verse 37. His panic and flight, verse 50. His following at the safe distance, verse 54. His close association with the enemies of God, verse 54. All these, in turn, make the actual denial the logical and indeed almost the inevitable result of what's going to happen. Because this is Christianity 101. If you're faithful in the little things, you will be faithful in the big things. If you're faithful a little bit at a time, as you progress, you go left, you go right, you go towards life, you go towards death. And if you're making these little turns towards death, where does that road lead ultimately? There is no way Peter's not going to fail this. He's been failing it the entire chapter. And this is what we have to understand about the Christian life. We go about our business ignoring the tiny little trials all the time, thinking in our own minds that someday the big one's going to come and we'll be fine. And then the big one comes and we're like, man, this is like a long line of failure down to this point. And what we need to do is understand that before it happens, not after. That's the key. Now, I mean, we live in egalitarian times, but 
Peter is literally terrified of a little girl. I'm just going to say it. I have a little girl of my own. She's beautiful. But I'm just imagining him here with his sword, right? He tried to cut off the guy's ear. He's talking about how he's going to die for Jesus. And he's frightened by a little girl who has no authority, right? Is the little girl going to put him to death? She, she's literally just the doorkeeper. She's the one that just answers the door when the doorbell rings. And he's t- so terrified of her and her questions that he's going to deny Jesus with a curse upon himself. And this is a lot of what, this is a lot of modern masculinity right here. It wilts, right, by the pressing questions of a little girl. This has happened to me sometimes with my, with my own daughter, right? The, some of the questions she can ask, and it frightens me, right? And I'm a big macho man, and now all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I don't know how to answer these. I'm not going to tell you what that song's about that I was listening to. I'm not going to tell you what that word I said means. And I'm frightened by the holiness of a little girl. It's such a just strange detail that they tell us. It was big, macho Peter, scared of a little girl. All right. Peter failed a much lesser test than Jesus faced, and in the process denied himself and his master. Okay, Jesus is upstairs testifying to who he is. Peter is downstairs Right? And it's the same test. Who is Jesus? Is he your Lord? Is he your master? Aren't you one of his? Aren't you following him? And Peter fails the test. Peter was unfaithful and faithless in little falls all along, leading to the big fall. Now, let's, this is the comparison that we've been having here. Jesus and Peter have been being compared ever since Peter's rash vow. Jesus prayed, Peter slept. Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. Father, Peter tried to avoid it by bashing heads with his sword. Jesus stood valiantly, Peter fled. Jesus was taken into custody, Peter followed at a safe distance. Jesus was falsely tried, Peter warmed himself comfortably at a fire alongside Jesus' persecutors. Jesus acknowledges his own identity, Peter denies knowing Jesus at all. Jesus never heard of him. I was just passing by and I saw this warm fire and I thought, yeah, I'll sit here for a little while. Now, are you following Jesus at a safe distance? Right? Sometimes you're like, hey, right? In your own mind, you're like, I'm following him, I'm following him. But if we really got out of measuring day, we'd be like, man, this is a pretty safe distance. You're way back here. He's way up there. He's there, right? In the gutters with folks, and you're where? Safe at the fire comfortably. Are you avoiding or failing trials of your faith and fidelity to God? Are you more interested in your own comfort? your own easy, safe selfishness? Will you testify of Jesus' identity or deny it when it is convenient and secures your creaturely comfort? This is a totally different test than the high priest. The high priest has a false religion that Jesus is counter to, right? The high priest's figly faith, Jesus doesn't fit into it. What we have with Peter here is he just would rather be safe and warm. He would rather follow Jesus, right? He's in the kingdom, but he's at a very safe distance. Now, what we have seen here are two trials where the high priest and Peter have utterly failed. Utterly failed. But there's one more trial. One more trial. Now, after their decision to take deadly action against Jesus, the members of the Sanhedrin take turns spitting on him as a sign of repudiation and condemnation. Then they slap him, then they cover his face, and then they goat him with this, prophecy, they say. Prophesy, go ahead. 
Now, a lot of us, I think, generally when we hear this, they cover his face with a rag, and then they punch him in the face, and then they say, okay, who hit you? Prophesy, who hit you? And that's not really what's going on. They're asking him to prophesy. And this, right here, is the most ironic thing of the entire event. They, they want Jesus to... What, what has he been doing for 14 chapters? Many assume the Messiah would have prophetic gifts because of Isaiah chapter 11, verses 2 through 4. I won't read it, but in that, it, it says that the Messiah will be able to prophesy. They are not mockingly asking him to guess who struck him. This right here is actually the true chest of Jesus. Jesus remains silent through all the libel, all the perjury of false witnesses. Mark is using these taunts to remind his readers that Jesus has not been silent, as indeed spoken prophecy all the way through the whole gospel. Jesus has prophesied about what is happening to him right there when they're mocking him with, hey, prophesy something, buddy. Jesus told his disciples, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Prophesy, brother. And as they punch him, they're fulfilling the prophecy that he made. The silence of Christ was in itself a prophetic sign. <coughs> Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before his shearers is silent, so he opened his mouth. Jesus prophesied that the disciples would be scattered when the shepherd was struck in 14.27, and this prophecy was unhappily fulfilled in chapter 14, verses 50 through 52. Downstairs in the courtyard, this is how the King James Version uh, translation put it. This is what Jesus prophesied would, be, would happen to Peter. Before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. Prophesy. Everything that Jesus has prophesied over this point is happening. It's happening right there, right then, as they're mocking him about prophesying. Now the fourth trial, the one that I've waited on, is this. You're the readers of this gospel. Your judgment of Jesus, given the evidence of Mark, will itself be judged. At this very moment, the reader is confronted with the question of Mark's account, back in chapter 8, verse 29. And Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? The high priest says he is a blaspheming felon. Peter says he's no one, nobody. Jesus, I've never heard of him. Who do you say that Jesus is? Are your idols blinding you to, the, to his humility, to his beauty, to his innocence, and to his loving kindness? Is your easy, safe selfishness in danger? And so are you denying him? Are you keeping him at arm's length? The reader of Mark's account, you, know a great deal more than the characters in the story. A great deal more. And you have been given the Holy Spirit to comprehend what it means. You know that Jesus prophesied that the temple would be destroyed in Mark chapter 13, verse 2, and we know that that happened, right? You know this, and they don't know this. Peter doesn't know this in the story. The high priest doesn't know it, but you know. He said it's going to be destroyed, and what happened to it? It was destroyed. You know that Jesus said after he was raised, he would go before the disciples to Galilee. We on this side of the cross know that that came true. We know more than they know. 
Jesus declared himself to be the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7. This is what it says in verse 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Is this true? I'm asking you, is this true? Did this actually happen? Is this who Jesus is? Who do you say he is? Do you live as if his kingdom could be destroyed by elections and Democrats and viruses and financial collapses? Jesus has been saying who he is. The value of his word has been demonstrated and is demonstrated again and again and again. You could testify to that. Couldn't you? Could you testify to his word coming true? Could you testify to his power? Could you testify to the fact that he is, in fact, right now sitting at the right hand of the Father? He said that he was going to go to the Ancient of Days, and he, he said that he would be the one that comes and judges mankind. Do you believe it's true? Do you live like it's true? What he wants is he wants you to not just believe it, but know it. He wants you not just to believe it. Demons believe. He wants you to live like it's true. He wants you to be like him. He wants you to count it all joy when the trials come because the trials that come into your life make you like him. It kills all your idols. It slays all your selfishness. It, it brings you out of your comfort into a place where you're trusting him and following him and putting all your hope in him. See, Peter remembers this. Peter remembers what happened. And this is what he, he tells us, if I can find it. This is what he tells us. Remember, this is the gospel according to Mark, according to Peter, according to Jesus. And this is what Peter tells us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, For to you, for, for to this you have been called. To this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is what you were called to. Your calling is that when the trial comes, you don't flee. When the trial comes, you don't try to do it under your own power. When the trial comes, you don't think, oh my gosh, I'm going, to, I'm going to question who Jesus is. Is he really good? Is he really all-powerful? Is he say, who he says he is? You know he is who he says he is. Right? We'll sit here. You guys are in nice, comfy chairs. It's very warm in here. This is a nice... Yeah, everybody's like, man, preach it, brother. He's in heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's got all the power. He's good. And then we will walk out of the door, and our tire will be flat, and all of that will go kaput. Jesus never heard of him. But this is what we're called to. And what we're called to is, is him demonstrating again and again and again and again, I love you. I want you to be like my son. Watch all the stuff that's going to come into your life that's going to rip your heart out, and yet you will always find me there with you. None of this is outside of our control. 
They can't do anything to our bodies. There is no virus that is going to prevent us from getting into heaven. There is no financial crisis that's going to keep us from entering those pearly gates. He is who he says he is. And, and you're going to leave here and he's going to test whether you really believe that again and again. Don't be discouraged. Count it joy because that, that is what's leading to steadfastness. So that when he says, die to yourself and follow me, you have the strength to do it and the determination to do it and the courage to do it. If, you know you fail your trials, but go and look at how he did not. And because he didn't, you don't have to either. Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your ministry to us. We thank you, Lord God, that even now Christ is on his throne, that he has accomplished everything for our salvation, that he has poured out his spirit on us, that he has drawn us into the fellowship of the saints. We pray, God, that as, when the trials come, that we would not question who Jesus is, but that we would remember who he is, and that we would count it joy, and that we would run to him, and that he would be our strength, he would be our hope, that no matter what comes to us, Lord God, that we would cling to the rock of our salvation, for he is unmoving and he is glorious. Amen.